Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. It's just 56 days since Kwasi Kwarteng set out his September mini-budget, How Things Change. We now know the contents of Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement. The Chancellor claims it is a plan that will tackle the cost of living crisis and rebuild our economy. It certainly involves a very different approach to tax to Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget. We'll crunch the numbers and weigh up the government's announcements. On last week's podcast, we discussed bullying claims being made about Gavin Williamson. This week, we're going to do the same for Dominic Raab. But what do the multiplying leaks about ministerial conduct say about relations between civil servants and ministers? We'll explore a potentially serious problem for the government. And then we're going to look at some questions that have, for some time now, been bubbling away beneath the surface, sometimes bursting out into the open. And that's the Constitution, or rather, how governments go about changing the Constitution. Spoiler alert, governments often get it wrong. A new IFG guest paper digs deeper into this issue, and we're going to talk to the author. So to discuss all this, I'm joined in the studio today by two IFG colleagues who followed every word uttered by the Chancellor, and that's Chief Economist Gemma Tetlow and Senior Fellow Giles Wilkes. Hi, both. Hi, Hannah. Good morning, Hannah. And I'm delighted that we're joined today by Philip Rycroft, the former Permanent Secretary of the Department for Exiting the European Union and the author of our new guest paper on the Constitution. Hi, Philip. Good morning, Hannah. Have you been pleased to be outside government over the past few months? (laughs) That's what you might call a leading question. (laughs) Uh, Yes, is the honest uh, answer to that. It's been pretty torrid, I think, within the House. Um, All this, obviously, the Johnson era, the, the relative chaos of that, and then this sort of switching and turning that we've seen over the last few weeks it's quite extraordinary a sense maybe that the the adults are back in the room but um time will tell whether yesterday's events uh, survive the, the test of time indeed so let's begin with yesterday's events and the autumn statement the dust is still settling but the ifg team have been working through the night to make sense of jeremy hunt's announcement Gemma, did he do what he needed to do It seems he did, I think. Um, Certainly the markets have been much calmer than they were in response to Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget from a month ago. I mean, I suppose the main thing that Jeremy Hunt had to do yesterday was to set out what this government's fiscal plans are and to reinforce the message that this is a government committed to fiscal credibility, which is what they've been trying to show over recent weeks. Interestingly, they went with a package of spending cuts and tax rises to cut borrowing, which are very backloaded. Most of the action is happening beyond the next election. And actually, the net effect of yesterday's announcements was to give money away in the short term. So markets don't seem to be worried about that, but they do seem to have relied on the fact that markets believe this is a government committed to fiscal credibility, as opposed to having made big down payments on that in the short term. So I think that was one interesting thing. The thing that he couldn't really get away from was not so much what this government has done, but the reality of the new economic forecasts, which look absolutely grim for household incomes. And what what didn't he say? I I suppose what What wasn't there was um, detail on how they would do those spending cuts later. They gave money away in the short term to help out some of the critical services, health, social care, education, with pressures they're facing at the moment. But the numbers they've pencilled in for the end of the forecast period in the next spending review are incredibly tight and look 
almost implausible unless you're envisaging a radically different profile of public services beyond the next election. So there was a lot not said about what do these plans really mean and a sense, I think, that they're hoping things actually get better in the forecasts and they don't have to follow through with all of this. And before the statement, you wrote for us setting out five things that you would be looking for. Did you get your answers? We did get our answers. Um, So I think on a couple on the economics, the macroeconomic forecast side, the first question we set out was how tough is the next year going to be? And actually, we expected it to be tough, but I was pretty astounded by the numbers that the OBR set out yesterday showing real household disposable incomes falling by 7% over this year and next year. It's just on a scale... We haven't seen anything like this since the Second World War, at least. Um, and I suppose one lingering question is really what what are the, what are the political implications of this? It's an incredibly tight squeeze on household incomes going into the next election. What does that mean for voter sentiment? Um, beyond that, uh, the economic outlook is worse than what we had in March, but that was very much expected. But the OBR isn't anything like as pessimistic about the growth prospects as the Bank of England was, for example, a couple of weeks ago. Um, So while the government might be hoping that things get better and they don't have to do all of the tax rises and spending cuts that they've set out, if the Bank of England actually turns out to be right, then we'll need more, not less. So that's one big question that I think remains. Um, One of the other things we're looking for is what new fiscal rules Jeremy Hunt went with. And I think the big news out of yesterday's statement was really this is a very permissive set of fiscal rules. It's much looser than anything previous governments have signed up to. And on top of that, they've built in very little headroom compared to past practice. They have actually, one of the big decisions they made yesterday was not just to do spending cuts and tax rises, but actually to be happy with quite a bit more borrowing permanently than has previously been the case. And Giles, Hunt said there may be a recession made in uh, Russia that there is a recovery made in Britain. Do you think voters will buy that, given the sorts of uh, figures that Gemma's been talking about? I mean, do you know what this reminds me of? Is Donald Trump saying before the midterms that if these go really well, it's down to me, but if it goes really badly, it's none of my fault. (laughs) Um, I don't think you can always get away with that formula. Um, Look, there's a fair amount of truth here. If you look, if you look at the um, difference between the economic forecasts in March and November, which, as Gemma points out, was a really, really bad. And March was already the headlines were all about a terrible cost of living crisis about to hit us, and then they're now worse by like four or five percent. Just absolutely awful. But if you look at the really major difference driving that, it's two big things. One, gas prices being much, much higher. And we use a lot of gas in this country, particularly for heating. And two, interest rates being much, much higher. And although a lot of that comes down to, well, a lot of it did for a while come down to Truss and Kuateng. Actually, it's a global interest rate movement. So when he talks about some of these conditions that have driven us into this position being outside of the UK, mostly sort of Russia, Ukraine, the inflationary environment, there is some justification for that. But the trouble is... It, you know, because of the last eight weeks, nobody's going to look around and say the UK government hasn't played an incredible role in this. I mean, they must just wish that they hadn't had that eight week period of madness because they would have had a really difficult time this autumn and next spring announcing ways to bring some kind of balance to the fiscal situation. But that moment has caused us to have to do it really, really abruptly in a really visible way and with all of the focus on what the government has done wrong and the government's responsibility. So, yeah, I think, you know, 
a lot a lot of this would have happened no matter who was the chancellor no matter what they might have done before but the uk is almost unique in being forced to have to address this really difficult long-term situation in a really quick and arguably rushed and over hasty way and and our international partners will be watching to see how that goes down no doubt hunt also continuing the international references, promised Scandinavian public services with Singaporean efficiency. Giles, um, is that achievable? <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's working that way right now in our public services. Um, I, I, I mean, I hadn't picked up. I was assuming when I saw echoes of that on Twitter that people were making some kind of a joke about it. I mean, as far as I know, we are running our public services on a shoestring. And if you can get fantastic performances out of running things on a shoestring, then I guess there's enormous efficiency there. But there's no sign whatsoever that we are getting that fantastic report. You only need to look at the um, performance monitor produced by the IFG. Quick plug in there. Everyone should go back and read that. To see performance tracker. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, uh, To see that, you know, we're nowhere near that. And the the most obvious and um, visible and painful manifestation of that being the rise in people waiting for important treatment on the NHS, but the performance of prisons, the performance of local authorities, the number of people failing to get the social care they need. There's no way we're getting anything like Scandinavian services right now. So that seems like an unusually provocative thing for what was otherwise a pretty sort of cautious and downbeat um, statement to contain. I think there's no way anyone can see that kind of fantastic level of Scandinavian efficiency coming down the road. Mm. Philip, what stood out for you uh, from yesterday's statement? Well, a, a couple of things looking at this in a slightly longer term. One is just to come back that debate about the right level of tax in this country relative to what we expect from our public services. Um, we are not a high tax country compared to certainly a lot of, uh, of countries within the EU who manage to be um, both more prosperous and more equal than we are here in the UK. So this notion that we need to be low tax in order to grow and be prosperous, I don't think is supported by the evidence. And are we at a bit of a swivel point now in British politics where the debate is going to shift more seriously into that question um, as to whether we can afford uh, the sort of services that we want and expect um, uh, without raising taxes uh, um, uh, permanently to, to, to a higher level. So that's one thing. And the other, the other thing that is so noticeable in British politics at the moment, and it, it is the dreaded B word, um, you know, the one thing that does distinguish us, us from uh, most other countries um, is that we decided uh, to uh, break up uh, the relationship with our our closest and most important trading partner. And we're seeing the economic impact of that that now beginning to appear through uh, all the other stuff that's been going on, particularly around trade, but you also look at business investment. Um, And this is, again, something that this and future governments is going to have to deal with. Um, How do we address the harm that has been and will be caused by Brexit, uh, rebase the British economy uh, post-Brexit? That's a journey that we're only just beginning. And it's the, it's the conversation that politicians at the moment are finding very, very difficult to have. And as a former civil servant, I mean, we talked uh, about the, the sort of um, the cuts to public services and so on. There's also, uh, we know, uh, Whitehall departments have, have been asked to find cuts, or those will, although those will be uh, orders of magnitude less significant than the, the cuts in, in public services. How hard is it to run a department when you're 
being told to find cuts. Oh, it, 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 of course, it doesn't make life any easier. And there will be folk um, who will say, well, there's always the opportunity to take some money out of the running of government. Um, the countervailing point to that, of course, is that government has made its job more difficult. Uh, again, this is about the post-Brexit British regulatory state. Um, we, have, we have rehomed a whole pile of regulation. Um, and we're just at the beginnings of trying to sort all of that out. Um, and so managing all of that alongside these really, really tough issues in public services will stretch departments. And, you know, frankly, the last thing they want at the moment is the Treasury breathing down the necks to find what in the grand scheme of things are relatively small savings. Um, as I've said in, on a number of occasions over the last two, three years, there are there is only one civil service um, that the government has its disposal and it should look after it um, uh, because you know they rely on the civil service to to make sure that the country functions. Gemma, I mean, do you think the fact that Jeremy Hunt, now Chancellor, has run departments in in the past will be shaping will have shaped his approach because you don't always have people in that role who've had that previous experience? No, I think it's a really good question and. I think there was evidence of that in the statement yesterday. We saw more detail on some of the realities of the issues facing some of these departments in the way he talked about it and in the things that he announced. So, for example, in his announcements on the NHS, I mean, he he made the sort of tongue-in-cheek reference to his own report from when he was uh, chair of the Health and Social Care Committee. But we saw him, for example, announce a plan to put in place an NHS workforce plan, which is something that people looking at that area have been calling for for a really long time. And I think it's very interesting to see him as Chancellor recognising the need for the, the reality of what does it mean for the health service to deliver over the next 10, 20 years. So I think there were there were signs that actually there was more understanding of what it means for these public spending departments and what they need, not just making the numbers add up from a treasury perspective. And just to go back to something that Philip said earlier about, you know, maybe this is an inflection point, maybe this is a point at which we need a bigger conversation about how we can afford the sorts of public services that we maybe have come to expect and that maybe sort of COVID has changed some of the expectations around that in the population. We've done some work, haven't we, on on how you should, how we think government should think about the tax system in relation to that. Or what are the um, things we would be hoping to see, and and to what extent do you think there are indications we might see that this is a government really going to think seriously about whether tax can deliver the sorts of money we might need in the future? I totally agree with Philip's point there, and it's something I think UK governments have been and the public, to be honest, have been dancing around for a long time. Is this tension between wanting to be US levels of tax with European levels of public services. And I would agree with Philip that it does seem the shift over recent years, the consistent desire for better public services suggests that we're likely to end up in a position where we're really talking about more European public services, and then we have to have a tax system that matches up to that. Um, to do that, I th- what we've suggested in our previous work is that the government needs to make a more coherent case for that. It needs to sell to the public that this is what we're trying to achieve in terms of funding for public services, and that requires a different structure of our tax system. And for example, if you compare UK taxation to continental Europe, continental Europe raises more in taxes, and it does that in large part by raising more from most people. 
it's not because they take much more from the wealthy. And Jeremy Hunt yesterday was trying to say this is very much a package of tax rises focused on those with the broadest shoulders. Actually, if you look at the countries that spend a lot more on public services and raise more in taxes, it's more about raising it across the board. And that requires more of a sales job to the public about why this is necessary, not pretending that somebody else can pay for this. So unfortunately, I don't think we saw any of that coming out in yesterday's autumn statement announcements. I mean, I think it's understandable why Jeremy Hunt wouldn't have gone for a radical reform of the tax system yesterday, given that we're only a few weeks past quasi quarting attempting to do radical tax reform and that going down very badly. But we could have started to see them laying the groundwork, being clear about what their objectives are for the tax system. And we we didn't see any of that yesterday. It was really a package of measures that were largely about doing it in the least obvious, most stealthy way. Um, so I think there's there's definitely room room for more if we really want to reform the tax system. And Giles, just to, to, to finish um, talking about the, the autumn statement, this is also a question for Labour, right? Um, going into the next election, um, what do you think is going to be their approach now and how are they going to manage this sort of way in which Jeremy Hunt has tried to frame the terms of, of the task for them. You're right, it is a dilemma for Labour to a certain degree and that, you know, Labour want to do good things with the state and having less money and being told that you need to have um, spending totals rising by only 1%, which is in fact just savage cuts when you compare to what needs and inflation, etc. do. Uh, that That is really difficult. I mean, their political challenge is to focus on who was in charge when we went into this absolutely appalling hole and not and say, look, we're the opposition, we have plans and you can see them when we get elected but it's not down to us to um to sort of be pulling you out of the today's cost of living and public services crisis now and they also need and i know they're conscious of the, the demand to come up with another idea for growth in that they need to say look everyone agrees that weak growth and as philip says the brexit deal's impact on that is incredibly important everyone agrees that weak growth is the underlying fact under all of our problems, if we were a 5% larger economy in five years' time, which is about the size of the Brexit hole, then a lot of these fiscal issues would not be there to be um, to, to be confronted. So they need to have some sort of explanation for why clearly the Kuateng approach didn't work. And the Hunt approach seems to be very sort of gloomy and negative and just stability only. They need to have some kind of a positive idea there. And I think they're quite conscious of it. So, yeah, there are dilemmas for Labour, but I think if you, those of us with long enough memories of the early 90s, you know, all the Labour Party had to do when facing down the major administration was just to point at the mess that was going on there, point at the divisions they seemed to see across the aisle and say, you know, we're going to be sober, grown-up people who are more in touch with British values than that kind of rabble. And that tends to be enough and detailed plans can wait for when you've got a cadre of excellent civil servants to work for you to sort of work it out. So I suspect that's what we'll see in the end. Let's switch now to the other story that has dominated Westminster this week, and that's a new set of bullying claims, this time being made against Dominic Raab. The Justice Secretary has responded by writing to the Prime Minister and requesting an inquiry, and Rishi Sunak has obliged. But leaks about ministerial conduct in Sunak's government seem to be multiplying. Philip, what does this all say about levels of trust within government between civil servants and ministers? 
Well, it doesn't say good things, that's absolutely for sure. And it, it does seem that one of the things that's happened over the last little while uh, is a degradation in that relationship between ministers and the civil service. Um, there's clearly been stuff going on behind the scenes, um, which we get uh, catch a glimpse of now and again. But there's also been a lot of knocking copy in the public domain. Uh, this is not good. It's not good for, for stable government. It's not clearly not good for the morale uh, of the civil service. Uh, I, I suspect that behind all of this is the something of the trauma of the last few years um, where there, there's been such a sort of ideological storm through government that the civil service has got swept up in that. And all of these accusations of civil servants being you know, a bunch of, of white Romaniacs has sort of stuck in a way. And it may be given people permission who previously wouldn't have, uh, have felt they had that permission, both to be more caustic in private, but also in public about the civil servants who who work for them. Now, that's not to say that everything civil servants do is absolutely perfect. Um, you know, lots goes wrong. People make mistakes. Um, uh, you know, some not very good work happens and so on. But the vast majority of civil servants are pretty dedicated, committed people, want to do a good job for the government of the day. Um, so this sort of stuff is very, very toxic. And, uh, you know, any sensible government would try to deal with it and deal with it uh, effectively. And we uh, keep banging on about the absence of a advisor to the Prime Minister on ministerial standards, which we're told, um, I mean, there seem to be indications that there's a recruitment process underway. So we'll remain to be seen who decides to take that on. And um, our line is very much that they shouldn't do so unless they have a strengthening of their powers. Giles, you've worked in government. It can be tough. It's certainly been tough over the past few years. And ministers... Can, are entitled to have demanding standards. Do you feel that what we're seeing is a is a question of changing behaviour, or is it changing expectations about behaviour? I think that we have become less tolerant of bullying, rightly, as time has passed. But at the same time, I think some of this reflects just that the. the, the I, I don't wish to get too personal about any particular cabinet minister, but it feels to me like if you cast your eye over the kind of characters who raised the cabinet 20 or 30 years ago, they were less likely to be of the sort to act in a really vindictive and nasty way. And I don't, I'm not going to come up with a mega reason for that, some sort of underlying cause for why different sorts of people are getting in. But I think there was a sort of level of decency that hasn't necessarily been maintained over time. And parties should ask themselves whether they're asking tough enough questions of the people they put at the top before putting them at the top. That's a really important check, that if you think somebody is not decent to their staff, you shouldn't be putting them in one of these really important jobs. I'd like to say I personally was very lucky in that working for Vince Cable, he he was a, a thoroughly decent and gentle guy to work for. And Theresa May very upright too. None of none of them, all, all the staff around them were ever remotely likely to try to use bullying as a technique to get stuff done. But but, you know, I think our standards are a lot higher. And that's something that that's part of the sort of social change that we should be welcoming alongside other important movements over the years. We used to tolerate misogyny in the workplace and casual racism and so forth in ways that are now totally unheard of. And I think bullying and sort of coercive behaviour is a part of that. I'm sure that there were lots of bullying bosses way back in the day. But I, I have never heard from and I'm an absolute addict of political memoirs. I've never heard um, of accounts of the sort of 
personally nasty behavior that you do hear of some of the characters I'd rather not name right now behaving towards the staff closely around them and it's and it's impossible to come up with either a theory that justifies it or any kind of an excuse I think that's a really interesting point about the sort of this being potentially part of a changing wider sort of social acceptability of this sort of behavior Gemma do you do you feel like there are parallels in other um sort of areas of of public life so the one that sort of struck me in watching this is another one I'm somewhat familiar with, which is in academia, and I suppose particularly I'm familiar with economics academia, where I think there's been a similar self-reflection shift in expectations that it's another workplace where there are very unequal power dynamics. You have tenured professors who can have a huge impact on junior academics or PhD students' careers, where there are very unclear management responsibilities. Is is a professor in any way a manager of their research assistants, their students, um, and very unclear lines of accountability there. And I think there, there has also been a bit of a shift in recent years towards codifying expectations of behaviour at all levels and less of a feeling of acceptability that poor poor behaviour sort of what might have been put down in the past to just high standards, high expectations, that actually that's some of those behaviours are not acceptable in the way that they perhaps were in the past. That's very interesting. I've thought about this also a lot in relation to Parliament more generally, where I do think, you know, some of the sense that we uh, have seen a lot of problems lately is actually down to the fact that Parliament's been trying to make efforts to sort itself out in terms of having proper processes for people to report bad behaviour. And so some of that is, is becoming more visible and rightly, rightly so, as you both said. Okay, let's move on now and talk about the Constitution, something that we seem to be thinking and talking about a lot more these days. It's been under pressure since Brexit and tested to its limits or arguably sometimes beyond by the Johnson government. But our Constitution is famously uncodified and also we've seen it erratically updated. So are there better ways to go about changing it? or potentially better ways to protect it. This is a subject of a new paper written for us by Philip for a review of the constitution which we are conducting jointly with the Cambridge University's Bennett Institute. Philip, can you give us a few examples of updates or attempted updates to the constitution that we've seen over the last 25 years? So? Well, uh, yeah, just a couple of examples from from my paper. One, if you look at the territorial governance of the United Kingdom, uh, there has been some reform, clearly, and some quite effective reform in terms of devolution to Scotland, Wales, and also Northern Ireland. But the point I make about this is this was a very incomplete reform. It was sort of done uh, in in a bit of a hurry in 1997, devolution settlements um, for Scotland uh, and Wales, and then uh, following the Good Friday, the Belfast Agreement, Northern Ireland, but in a rather incohate way that each of the settlements rather different. But the key point is that despite this devolution to uh, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, the centre itself never really changed. And you see the sort of history of that since then, um, uh, the devolution and the settlements themselves going through various changes um, as they were uh, adapted to, uh, to, to meet sort of uh, emerging circumstance. Uh, but the centre struggling to work out what it does with this new distribution of power uh, across the UK. And so we talk about the devolution settlements, but they've actually been very 
unsettled and that relationship between the UK government and the devolved governments probably is its lowest ebb now uh, uh, than ever before. So that's one example. The other one, just to take perhaps the most egregious of all, of course, is the uh, the House of Lords. Um, various reform attempts made over uh, now over a century. Um, the Labour government obviously uh, ending uh, uh, the tenure of most of the, but not all of the hereditary peers, but then getting stuck. I mean, you just step back from this for a moment. You think this, uh, this uh, second chamber, over 800 members, this really weird appointments procedure, the only bit of democracy um, when the uh, remaining hereditary peers um, by each party elect a replacement when uh, when one of their number departs one way or the other. Um, this is frankly quite extraordinary in a modern democracy. And yet the failure of the political system uh, to achieve an effective reform, despite the fact that all of the parties at uh, one time or another have been committed to that reform, is a bit of an indictment of the way we go about constitutional change in this country. So good examples there of, of sort of change, incomplete change with some unforeseen or un, sort of worked through consequences. And then other other places uh, with the Lords where, um, you know, desired change just hasn't been possible. And then we've seen the Johnson government, which didn't so much have an agenda for constitutional change, but did a lot of testing the limits yeah. of the constitution. Absolutely, and in, in a you know famously, we don't have a written constitution. We rely uh, a lot on on convention and precedent. And when you have a government that is basically um, prepared to ignore that convention, uh, then it can go a surprising distance uh, in terms of testing our democratic norms and infrastructure. Now. It's arguable that what the Johnson government did was a series of disconnected things which sort of added up to what I would think of as a, an erosion of our uh, democratic norms. Other people say there was a sort of a predetermined plan there. I, I don't think I'd go so far as to accuse the Johnson government of having a plan, but that, that that's maybe uh, beside the point. The fact is that through, for example, the prorogation episode, uh, the willingness to countenance breach in international law, um, the way that the government clipped the independent wings of the Electoral Commission, the introduction of ID and polling stations in Great Britain, which is, uh, you know, is an absolutely egregious uh, example of a solution in search of a problem, very little evidence of uh, electoral fraud uh, in GB, um, uh, the assault on the devolution settlements and so on. There's a whole series of episodes um, which, for those of us watching the Constitution, made for a really quite worrying trend. And what it says is that it, with a government that sort of basically is careless um, uh, uh, or antipathetic to the way uh, that we've structured our democracy, it can go quite a long way um, in, uh, in eroding uh, the buttresses of our democratic uh, infrastructure. So your paper for us sets out six proposals for uh, thinking about how we should reform the way that we do constitutional change in order to address those risks. Do you want to, to run us through some of your ideas? Yeah, I think the first thing to say is that, you know, quite a lot of folk now, more than I think I've heard certainly in my sort of 30 years in the civil service, um, 
and so at the time I was running a constitution saying the answer to all of this is a written constitution. You look where written constitutions come from, they tend to emerge after um, nation forming events and, and those nation forming events often are very traumatic and you know, despite all our travails um, at the moment I don't think we're at that sort of, of point and so I don't think um, aspiring to a written constitution is, is actually practical and realistic so what I'm proposing are some uh, more modest steps but the, the the gist of what I'm aiming at here is to try and make the process of, 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 of managing our constitution more self-reflective within the political process, within Parliament in particular, and more engaging uh, of the public outside of Parliament. In other words, we think harder about this and try and therefore build something that's more coherent and has more public buy-in. So just some of my, my thoughts on this, um, you know, make it in a norm that if we're doing constitutional change or constitutional reform, we have far deeper public engagement, uh, perhaps using citizens' assemblies, um, commissions and so on. So there is that deeper sense of public engagement. I think um, entrenching what you might think of as core constitutional statute, like the devolution settlements, um, Bill of Rights and such like, um, so requiring a two-thirds of majority to amend or overturn them, that doesn't stop a parliament then repealing that statute, of course, and, and just seeking to go ahead. What it does is raises the bar. It makes it more apparent when a government um, is wanting to change something that is core to the constitution. I think, um, you know, from what I've said, you'd have gathered I'm rather in favour of reforming our second chamber, but a reformed second chamber could, as one of its major roles, uh, be a guardian uh, for the constitution. In a, in a sort of sort of slightly uh, more minor key, the cabinet manual, which um, is the nearest thing we've got, the guide to cabinet secretaries and, and, and governments as to how to manage some of these constitutional issues. Um, that's very much at the uh, at the behest of the prime minister and the cabinet secretary. I'm suggesting you put that on a statutory basis. Uh, again, so it requiring debate in Parliament when it's amended. Um, just a couple of other quick thoughts. Civil service, surprisingly, um, doesn't actually uh, spend a huge amount of time or energy thinking about the constitution. I mean, I looked after constitutional issues uh, in Whitehall for seven years and sort of struggled somewhat to catch the attention of my colleagues, which it was a bit of a surprise. If, if the civil service isn't worrying about it, you sort of slightly wonder who is. So building up civil service capability, I think, is absolutely critical. And finally, um, I would like to see some sort of external organisation uh, that is a, an emanation of government but independent um, to be uh, a, a, a sort of a, a, to, to advise on constitutional issues, to put forward proposals, not for immediate implementation, but um, requiring at least debate. So what we're trying to do uh, through all of this is to raise the level of debate, the level of self-reflection in the system uh, in the way we go about, think about our constitution and change our constitution. That's really, really interesting. And I guess, Charles, that's, that's the key um, question, really, isn't it? Where are the incentives for politicians in all this? Can you really see politicians wanting to do the sort of put the sorts of um, restrictions on their ability to, to use what we've demonstrated in recent years has been a pretty uh, usefully flexible um, constitution? Or, you know, do you think that that's just never going to be a priority? 
I mean, the the great moments in British economic history, in a way, are the ones where politicians tied their own hands. I mean, the great one is, um, to go back somewhat, is around 1689, where we decided the king couldn't just behave as he liked in Parliament and raise ridiculous taxes. And so property became more secure and the rule of law flourished and we did the Industrial Revolution and all good things followed. Now, I mean, Binding your own hands is often the very best kind of economic advance. And as you imply, politicians don't like it because they love getting into power and pulling all the levers and everything. So great moments like making the Bank of England independent, like removing the Treasury's ability to mark its own homework by creating the OBR, by setting up arm's length institutions like the Monopolies and Mergers Commission rather than just having ministers making decisions. So all of these things that get a hearty cheer from the Institute for Government tend to be unpopular with politicians. And the great example, I would say, is the one that Philip's talking about, devolution, that it would make a lot of sense for politicians to send decisions away from themselves and not allow themselves to interfere in local decision making and allow mistakes to be made at some other level. And the only reason I'm optimistic, well, I've got two reasons to be optimistic. One, it's a really popular idea across politics now. We need to keep going with proper devolution. And even tax raising powers, which 10 years ago, the business lobbies in particular were virulently against and kept shouting the name of Derek Hatton, the notorious council leader from Liverpool in the 80s who wasted terrible amounts of money. Now everyone's in favour of that sort of thing. And they realise it gives local authorities great incentives. And the, the other reason I'm optimistic is the decisions are really, really hard right now. And so maybe some of the politicians in Whitehall say, you know what, I'd rather devolve how this should happen to a less central point of government, because they will understand better what the trade-offs are, and maybe they can own those trade-offs. So I'm sorry, that's quite an abstract and historical look at the answer. But yeah, I mean, politicians don't like doing it. But ultimately, it's really good for the economy to bind your own hands and devolve power to more appropriate levels. Uh, just to add to what Giles was saying, though, kind of implicit in Giles's recent history there was that often you you get opposition parties to commit to these things and then they do them when they come into power. And we saw that with Bank of England independence in 97 and the OBR in 2010. So uh, sometimes I, I guess the way forward is to get politicians to commit to this when they're not at that point in a position where they are able to use the flexibilities and then you hold them to it afterwards. And Gemma... I was just thinking, as as Giles was talking, uh, when he said a historical precedent, I wasn't expecting him to go quite that far back. Um, you know, if one of the goals for government right now, it seems to be generally accepted, is creating a sense of stability in order to encourage businesses to invest and to kind of move away from this really significant political instability we've seen over a period of years and then are sort of on steroids this autumn. Do you think potentially uh, we could get politicians to think about constitutional stability uh, for the reasons that, that, that Giles has set out as an element of that, as, as part of saying, look, actually, the green ups are here, uh, we're going to be professional about government, and so we are going to make some of these changes? I think that's definitely has been an issue with part of the answer to the question, why have has the UK growth been so poor, has been the uncertainty around the direction of policy. Um, I think we saw some positives on this yesterday. If you take one of the areas of uncertainty um, has been government's 
minister's desire to get involved in regulated areas of the economy. There's been an increasing shift recently in ministers expressing views that the regulators haven't done the right thing. Um, and that's sort of across the board. And one interesting thing from this week was uh, around financial services regulations. So ministers had been threatening to legislate to give themselves more call-in powers on financial regulation. And I think the what we saw on Thursday was possibly around the Solvency 2 reforms and the discussions that are going on behind the scenes between the Bank of England and the Treasury is possibly a shift away from that desire for ministers to have their hands on everything. Um, so I think it's possible, but that falls well short of serious constitutional change and codifying this as opposed to um, just doing the right thing. I, I mean, I, I suppose I'm somewhat sceptical for incumbent politicians of how much they're willing to tie their hands. But I would hope that the more we can sort of put together evidence that actually this is costly, not just to the country, but to politicians themselves, that it sometimes putting in more rules gives you more room for manoeuvre. And you can definitely see that at the moment with things like Bank of England independence and the independence of the OBR, that the Chancellor has more room for manoeuvre on fiscal policy because the public markets believe that the Bank of England will deliver on its mandate to keep inflation under control. That has sort of created scope for fiscal policy to help households in the short term. So I think there is a, uh, there is a selling point there to ministers, but I'm not sure it's an easy sell. And Philip, just to give you the, the final word, I mean, we know that, that politicians care about what voters care about. How can we get voters to care about the constitution this is this is one of the conundrums we don't see these days the the sort of extra parliamentary agitation that again to to go back in history uh, you had indeed back in 1688 89 but also 1832 around the great reform act uh, the chartists the suffragettes and so on we, we seem to have gone a bit sleepy on on this in this country in in terms of the sort of fundamentals of our democracy um uh, there are obviously plenty of folk in in think tanks, good organisations, obviously, including the IFG, um, who try and, and, and keep the political class to, to rights. But ultimately, the appeal has to be to responsible politicians, elected politicians who rightly take these decisions at the end of the day. Uh, and it's about the culture of, of politics, what we expect of our politicians. And as both Giles and Gemma have said, there is a within that, there is a big part of that is the self-denying ordinance uh, that says we will exercise our powers within these parameters, but we will not go beyond that. And we have a duty to um, uh, future generations to bequeath them a constitution that is functional, where power is distributed uh, in an equitable manner, which should absolutely include, as, as Giles was saying, uh, devolution to England. It's another example where we've just got such a mess at the moment, uh, the governance of England between uh, uh, you know, this sort of uh, basically unitary state with uh, the, the metro mayors coming up, up the rails uh, uh, and various other forms of, of devolution in England. But it, what looks to, to most observers like a bit of a mess. Um, so the, the, the responsibility on the political class to get a grip on this, to think about it in the long term, and that's something that all of those that are observing this scene and commenting on it, I think, have to push. And there is a, there is a big moment, of course, when you come up to a general election that you hope you get commitments and manifestos that the incoming government will then stick to. 
Exactly. And I should say our a review of the Constitution has a, a paper coming out uh, soon looking at exactly that issue you raise about governance within England. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Giles Wilkes, Gemma Tetlow and to Philip Rycroft. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. And please do leave us a review. We've had a packed programme of brilliant events this week on public spending, on human rights and analysing the autumn statement with the BBC's Ben Chu and the ABR's Richard Hughes. These will all be available to listen to on our sister podcast, IFG Live, and you can read all our post-autumn statement commentary at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. And after all that, we got to the end of the podcast without mentioning Matt Hancock's adventures in the jungle. It was Jeremy Hunt who got through the big trial this week, but whether he emerged with any stars is a question we're waiting to see. See you all next week. Mm